Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah 6, and it can be found on page 401 in the Black Bibles that you'll see scattered around. There should be some nearby if you don't have a Bible. You're welcome to one of those. Uh, So page 401, Nehemiah chapter 6. We'll look at 6 and 7 a little bit today. In our Nehemiah series, we've called this Repairing the Ruins. And again, the context is after the exile. So this is very late in the history of Israel before Jesus came, but way late in their history as a people. They'd been exiled for their sin. And then God said, I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to work through you. I'm going to bring you back to your country. And I'm going to keep all those promises I made. Now, because of history, we can look back and say those were ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. But what we want to focus on as we've been looking through Nehemiah are the similarities. There are differences between Old Testament and New Testament, differences between Israel as the people of God and the church as the people of God. But there are huge similarities of God is working through a people that he saved, and he's going to broadcast who he is through these people. He's going to tell the world that he's a holy God, and he's also a merciful God. So just like the things we've sung today, God is holy, and he's almighty, but he's also merciful, and he comes to us through sacrifices that they saw in the temple system, but ultimately through the sacrifice of Jesus. So we are really doing similar things to what Nehemiah was doing, trying to repair what is broken in the world and build a place to broadcast who Jesus is. Who is God? What is God like? This week we're calling it Facing Fears. We've seen challenge after challenge that Nehemiah and the people of Israel have faced here in Jerusalem. Uh, Chapter 4, they were facing just the, the war challenge of having to be armed and fight as they were building the city. Then in chapter 5, we saw the internal problems of exploitation and kind of uh, inner injustice within their group that they had to face last week. And then now this week, uh, we're facing those outside threats once again, and they are, um, they are trying to make them afraid. They're trying to use everything they can to stop, to slow down the progress, to defeat them, to scare them, to intimidate them. So chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab And the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors yet in the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Fear and intimidation. The question is, how do they face our fears? How will we face our fears? Let me pray for us and we'll ask God to to help us today. God, we pray that you would help us, that we would learn from your word. Um, We pray that you would bridge the gap uh, between cultures, uh, the gap of time, um, that we would understand uh, that in the day of Nehemiah, these people were people struggling to trust you, just as we today are people that struggle to trust you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts to the reality that you are good, that you are holy, and that you are gracious to us in Jesus, and that that would just change everything, God, that you would help us because of that 
to live a life of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most uh, upsetting scenes in any movie I've ever seen uh, is in the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have any of you seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? It's a World War II movie that came out quite a while ago. Um, Really well done movie. And in the movie, uh, Corporal Upham is just paralyzed by fear. He's kind of this intellectual, poetry-quoting translator that isn't really much of a fighter. It's a part of this unit, but they need the translator. And in this one intense battle scene in the end of the movie, he's basically running ammunition back and forth at different people. Um, and he's doing it somewhat, but it gets to a point where he just is overwhelmed with his fear, his fear of death, his fear of getting hurt, his fear of dying. And there's just this horrible contrast where he's frozen on the stairs while uh, his partner is slowly getting killed in hand-to-hand combat just right up the stairs from him. And and he's hearing the sounds of it, but he can't move because he's so afraid. And I think, fortunately for most of us, we haven't been gripped quite to that degree, to that kind of extreme fear, but I I think we've all, in some places in our life, been paralyzed by fear, been gripped by a fear that stops us from doing what we know we should do. And so when we look at the story of Nehemiah, we'll see someone who is facing horrible fear, their their own destruction, right? I mean, there's very real threats here, but he's able to overcome, not because he's such a stud, because Nehemiah is so awesome. The issue here is Nehemiah has faith in an awesome God. And so as anyone who's faced anything really scary or terrible can tell you, uh, bravery is, is not just not feeling anything. Bravery is being willing to, to face that fear. It's being willing to deal with it. And in our own Christian life, as we follow God, the way that we face our fears that he's trustworthy is by trusting him and by him again and again revealing to himself that he's good. And the more we see that he's good, the more we trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we're able then to face our fears and move forward. So when we look back at Nehemiah, we're not, we're not trying to just imitate everything Nehemiah does. We're trying to look through that to see What is he trusting in? Who is this God that he trusts in? What does it look like to walk by faith? And that's a principle that can be applied to any Old Testament book. As we look back in the Old Testament, we don't read it merely looking for examples. Examples are fine, but we want to see their faith. That's what Hebrews 11 highlights. We want to see their faith. So the first thing that we see as we move through the text here is that they're facing threats and rumors. They're facing threats and rumors, and this is uh, very real to the world that we live in as as well. Um, We have to face threats and rumors in life spiritually and physically as well, just ordinary people you work with and people you know, and just the world we live in is a broken world full of danger. Um, But also specifically, the New Testament tells us that the way that Nehemiah's enemies operated here with threats and rumors and accusation, that's the same way that our spiritual enemy operates. We're told that the devil is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We're told that he is an accuser who hurls accusations at us, who makes threats towards us. And so we see an example here in this real story of what it looks like for us to face accusation, to face threats, to face rumors. Romans 8 is one of my favorite passages to go to for us today as Christians to understand how to face these threats. Romans 8 one says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 8.18, we see this progression where he says, I consider that the present, the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
And so there's this idea we have that, yeah, life is going to be hard. There will be suffering. There will be fearful things we have to face in this world. But we can face it because of the hope we have in Jesus. So now let's look back through that lens and see this faith that we see in Nehemiah. Again, in verse 1, we're told, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of her enemies heard that I built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although at that time I'd not set up the doors and the gates. So what it's telling us is they built the walls, but they hadn't actually finished the the gates, right? The, The doors to come through. And so most of the work was finished. It was this kind of almost finished, this big psychological victory for the Israelites of, okay, they'd they'd achieved it. You know, the the finish line is within their grasp. They can see it, right? Now they just have to finish the gates. And so now they're almost there, and the enemy is getting desperate and coming back full force to face them. It says in verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Um, when you study the geography, it's about halfway between the capital Samaria and Jerusalem. It's not like it's that far away, um, but commentators would say that this is kind of out in the badlands. It would have been an unsafe place. It would have been an unregulated territory outside of Nehemiah's protection of his own men. So Nehemiah knew clearly that these guys wanted to hurt them. Um, For one thing, these guys had been very clear about their desire to hurt Nehemiah and the progress of uh, the people of Jerusalem all along. They've been saying it all along. And it reminds me a little bit of the, the situation with Israel today where Israel's surrounded by enemies um, that all have publicly stated, we want to destroy Israel. And then people wonder politically, like, why is Israel all so defensive? You know, what's that all about? Well, everyone said they want to kill them. You know, I mean, everybody keeps saying, we're, we want to destroy you and wipe you off the map. So it seems wise that they would want to be defensive and not go out for a little meeting out in the middle of nowhere. And that's That's what we see here with Nehemiah. He's saying, I know they want to kill me. I'm not going to go out there, right? I'd go out there and a report would come back that I had a chariot accident and something happened, you know, and we don't know what the deal would be. So he says, I know they intended to harm me. In verse 3, so I sent messengers to them saying, "I'm I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Um, This I'm doing a great work is not, look at me, I'm a great guy. It is, this is a heavy burden. This is great, heavy burden profound work that's being done and it can't be stopped. So, so that's what he's saying. He's talking more about the work than about himself. But he's giving a reason, giving a truthful reason of, I, I can't do this. I got to keep doing the work. He's focused on the mission that God has called him to do. He's saying, I got to keep doing here what God's called me to do. It can't be stopped. Verse four, it says, they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. And I think this is illustrative of how temptation, accusation, evil works. Uh, we tend to think, well, if I just trust God, I'll overcome that temptation, and then I'll be done, right? And then it'll be smooth sailing. I will have arrived to the second blessing, and there's not going to be any more problems for me in life. But that's not really biblically what we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we see uh, temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation, right? The threats and the rumors and the accusation just keeps coming. They, they continually push against them. They say it again, and they say it again, and they say it again. And it says, Nehemiah just kept responding, no, no, no. And that's a little bit like what our spiritual life looks like. We're going to continually be pressured to give up the work that God has called us to do. We're going to continually be pressured to not trust God and trust in some other influence in life. And that's different for all of us, right? We have, we have different lures, different things, different sins that we are tempted towards. But we all, as humans, are going to be tempted towards sin repeatedly, again and again, and we have to resist. 
repeatedly, again and again. And so he kept saying no. And in verse 5, it says, In the same way Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent a servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Open letter uh, means it was broadcast for everyone to see. You know, in the ancient world, we talk about this sometimes when we're studying other stuff. They would seal the letters with wax, and they would print it with a signet ring, right, or a medallion that only the king would have, so that was proof that it came from the king. He would seal the wax, and there would be an imprint, and that would be like his, uh, his logo, right, or his brand, or whatever would be on the wax, so you knew it was sealed, you knew this was private. Well, here, they're saying, this is public. It's an open letter. It's not sealed at all, and that's purposeful to spread it. Uh, in today's language, we would say, uh, this confidential information was leaked, right? That's what, the, that's what the press always says. This information was leaked. That means someone purposefully handed it out to a reporter somewhere, but acted like it wasn't public. But it was supposed to be public. You know, they wanted everybody to know about it, and that's what's happening here. They're making it public. It says in verse 6, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. So uh, you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. So they're saying basically you are trying to get a rebellion going. You're trying to fight against the emperor that you used to work for when you were cupbearer. Now you've come out here, you're building a fortress so that you can rebel and set yourself up as king. Um, And so they're saying something that might have a a ring of truth to it, but basically Nehemiah in the next verse can say, well, no, that's not true. That's not what we're trying to do. Yeah, we are trying to rebuild the city. Yeah, we are trying to be the people of God and regain our our, uh, identity again, but we're not trying to rebel against the emperor. That's not what's happening. This is not a rebellion. And so what we see here is, again, the same kind of... um, the same kind of method of operation that the devil, that the prince of darkness uses today. Maybe it's not even the devil. Maybe it's just a friend of yours, right? Or some relative that you can't trust and they're, they're whispering these things about you. These threats, these rumors, these lies, these accusations. I have a picture here of a little girl tattletailing to mama. Um, those of you with kids, this has probably never happened to you, but I hear sometimes that children will tell on each other, Right? Just the bad kids do this. They'll, they'll tell on each other. Um, and what you find sometimes is it's not actually anything that went wrong. It's just one kid wants another kid to do something differently. And they know that mom and dad hold, you know, hold the ring of power. And so they're going to go to mom and dad and say, hey, this is what happened. So-and-so did this. And they're, they're telling tales. They're telling tales. If you're a smart parent, you'll figure out a way to nip that in the bud. Uh, but it's something we all face. I mean, we, we can laugh at it as children, but we face it in our jobs, right? Someone talking about us. Someone trying to ruin our reputation. And again, what I want you to understand is this is a, this is a very real threat to Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't just ignore this and say no to this because it's not a threat. He says no to it because he trusts God and because he knows what God has called him to do. And that's the only way we can not be distracted by these kinds of threats and rumors as well. So when the devil in our own thought life condemns us, we have to believe that we can trust God. We have to recite the gospel to ourselves. Just as we looked at in Romans 8, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was condemned for us. So we have to face the the truth of the accusation that comes against us, right? Like there may be something in your life where the, the evil one is just inflaming shame, just telling you over and over again about what you did wrong. Just saying you 
are so broken, you're so evil, you're so um, out of touch with who God wants you to be, whatever it may be. I, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the area of weakness is for you, but I, but I know this is what happens. But Satan inflames that, that shame and, and fans that into flame and makes it worse, and that's all you can think about. And the only answer to that is the gospel. The answer to that is not, hey, no, I'm really perfect. I never did anything wrong. That answer doesn't work because it's not true. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So the way we answer these kind of accusations is to say, well, I'm not, I'm not perfect, and yeah, I have failed, but Jesus, Jesus took it for me, and the gospel is my hope. And so I know there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of that, I know the present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the, to the hope that I'm headed for. So Nehemiah was able to face what, what could have been his destruction. He knew God had called him to do this. He knew that these guys, their plan might work. He wasn't sure what God was going to do, but he trusted that God wanted him to take these steps. Right? Just like the, um, the friends of Daniel in the book of Daniel, when they're told to bow down to the false god, and if they don't, they're going to be thrown into the fire. They say, well, our God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't decide to do that, we're still going to obey him because we trust him more than you. And so you have to face those fears and recognize losing my reputation, losing my life might actually happen, but I trust God, and so the present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. I have, that's what it means to live with hope. L- living with hope doesn't mean you know everything's going to turn out rosy. We really do live in a broken world. We really do face pain. We really do face death. We really do, when people are telling rumors about you, you really might lose your job. You really might lose your reputation. But if God is with you, you can endure these things. You can persevere. You can trust him in the midst of the present sufferings. So the way we deal with this in our own life is we learn to talk back to the accusation in our own minds. Yeah, it's true I am a sinner, but Jesus has forgiven me. Yeah, it's true I have failed, but Jesus loves me. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how we handle threats and rumors. And then we see Nehemiah taking further steps with God's help. I want to focus in on their, their um, amplification here of God's help. God is helping us. God is with us. That's what we see in the next movement of the story. If you follow the story here, pick it up in verse 8. So chapter 6, verse 8, he says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you have said have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. He's standing up to the bully. Remember what James says about the devil. It says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Again, remember I said earlier, it's not necessarily you just resist one time and it's all over with. We have to continue to resist. We have to continue to persevere. But resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 9, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. This is this beautiful, beautiful thing we see again and again in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a leadership book because it shows a smart guy leading people and organizing people and uh, doing successful things. But, but don't miss the faith of Nehemiah. Don't, don't ever reduce Nehemiah to just leadership principles because at the core of all these leadership principles is Nehemiah trusted God. Nehemiah trusted God. He prayed. Yeah, he took steps. So he didn't go to the extreme of this kind of let go and let God and okay, God, you got it. Whatever, I'm not going to do anything. Right? That's one extreme that we're told to follow in our spiritual life. The other extreme is, well, I don't know what God's going to do. I'm just going to do my thing. In Nehemiah and in the Bible, we see these things sewn together, held together. I'm going to do what I can do, 
And I'm going to pray and ask God to strengthen my hands. I'm going to take every next step that I can take, and I'm going to ask God to help me, and I'm going to depend on him. And that's what the spiritual life is. The spiritual life is not just not doing things and floating around trusting God. It's taking the next steps that God's put in front of you and praying and saying, God, strengthen my hands. Oh, God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10, he says, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. More threats. Now, this was a prophet. He was visiting, but he knew that this guy was lying. How did he know? Because he tested what he said according to the Scriptures. I say a very important application for you um, as you listen to me preach would, would be that you would test what I say according to the Scriptures. Many of you are going to move on to some other church. When you go to a new church, test what is taught there according to the Scriptures. Be like the Bereans who were more noble than anyone else were told in the book of Acts because they tested what Paul said according to the Scriptures. So this is um, Nehemiah's response here. So this guy says, hey, go hide in the temple with me because they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. And he responds here in verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Saying, first of all, what kind of leader would I be if I just gave up? Oh, okay, people are, they want to hurt me. I guess I need to just quit the whole thing. All right, I'm done. No, God may ask you to face difficult things. I can't just quit, he says. But he also is wise, and he says, I can't go into the temple. It's illegal. God's word prohibits for me to go into the temple. I'm not a priest. And so he knew this prophet wasn't speaking in line with God's word. That's how you test a prophet or a preacher, is do they say something that sounds good, or do they say what God's word says? And it's nice when it sounds good and it's God's word, right? I mean, that's like a nice combination. But he's saying something that sounds good, save your life, save your life, save your life. Let's run into the temple. Well, when he says run in the temple, Nehemiah knows that's not what he's supposed to do because the law prohibited it. Nehemiah knew God's word. So a secondary application is if you don't know God's word, you can never really test what people say. That's why you need to read and study the scriptures for yourself. And so another sign to look for in a healthy church is a church that wants you to grow and get deeper in your understanding of the scriptures. If a church doesn't want you to get deeper and they say, leave that to me, I'm the leader, I'll tell you what to do, that's an unhealthy environment. That's not a good place to be. So Nehemiah knew the scriptures and he tested what the prophet said. He goes on and he says, verse 12, I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So again, we see Nehemiah praying, God, help me. Will you stop the bad guys and will you help me? We see him praying repeatedly. God remembers. God, watch, see, be involved in what's happening day to day. That is how we are to pray as well. When you're facing difficulty, when you're up against hard things in life, pray that God would do justice, that he would help you, that he would give you favor, that he would open doors. Sometimes God doesn't open those doors for us, right? Sometimes God allows us to persevere through suffering, but it's completely a appropriate to, to pray these prayers. God, help me. God, be with me. God, push against these people that are against you and help me honor your name. It's completely right to pray this prayer. In verse 15, he says, so the wall was finished 
on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. In 52 days. Uh, we don't, we're not wall building experts. We can't necessarily judge if that's fast. It sure seems fast, right? 52 days, a bunch of people that don't know how to build a wall, built a wall around a city. Verse 16 gives us more information. It says, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So he says, everybody knew that this was something God did. Everybody could tell. Everybody could see that God was at work. This was God's help. It wasn't just that Nehemiah was so smart and he had followed the 12 Nehemiah principles of leadership, right? It's that God was at work. God was moving through them. God was using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Don't miss that God wants to help you in your ordinary life. He wants to do extraordinary things through your ordinary life. I want to go ahead and wrap up these last couple of verses, and we'll go back to that thought again. So the enemies heard it. They were afraid and fell in their own esteem, for they perceived this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the, sons of, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And so what that is saying uh, is that he's related to the inner circle in Jerusalem. He was married into the high priest's family. So this guy wasn't just a bad guy out there of a different race and descendancy. He was a Jew who was allied with their enemies and who was related to the inner circle in Jerusalem. So look at verse 19. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Again, he's saying, this didn't just stop. This happened again and again. Tobiah was like in his back pocket. There were people all around him saying, hey, why don't you give Tobiah a chance? Tobiah's a nice guy. You know, he's related to my cousin's wife and we're friends and he's okay. You should trust him. You should partner with him more. But Nehemiah was clear. He knew what God had called him to do. And I love this verse again that highlights God's help and God being at work, it says that when they saw what was happening, they melted away because they knew God was involved. And I just want to highlight, God wants to do extraordinary things through your ordinary life. And one of the things that I think just as a shepherd that we get distracted by is we're looking for God to do really amazing things. We're looking for God to work miracles that are overwhelming. Uh, And so a lot of times we get caught up looking for a spiritual high or we get caught up looking for things like, um, miracles and healings and things like that, which I, I absolutely believe God can do and does do. But the way to the New Testament says the miracle that God is working in our midst is our spiritual transformation. That is the miracle. And so don't like miss that. Don't say, oh, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and patience and peace, that's just boring stuff. I want to see something more spectacular, right? I want to see lights and fireworks. No, don't miss that God wants to teach you to love and serve people. That is a miracle. When God changes our hearts to consider others, to care for others, to forgive others, to love others, to show kindness to others, to live justly, to not cut corners in our job, but to do our job with excellence as we're working heartily unto the Lord and not for men, that is, that is spiritual transformation. That is a miracle. So don't miss that. When people see that happening in your life, they will say what the nation said here wow, God, God is at work in these 
ordinary, uneducated people. And these regular people, God is at work. God's building something here. So don't underestimate that. Don't miss that. And I think the spiritual principle that we see Nehemiah enacting and we see in this part of the story is acknowledging God's help, acknowledging God's provision. And so what seems like something that we might want to just skip over because it's so ingrained in our culture. Yeah, we, yeah God, God's God. He's in control. He provided. God help me. Sure, sure, sure. But I want to do something really exciting. You know, I want to build a gospel blimp that flies through the sky and something nobody's ever seen before. I want to have some kind of event in a stadium or what, you know, we're just attracted to big, bright, shiny things. And he's saying, just recognize God is at work in your ordinary life. Give thanks to God for what he's done. We see Nehemiah praying, oh God, strengthen my hands. We see, God, uh, we see Nehemiah acknowledging God is at work and all the people could tell that God was at work. I want to give you an example of this. This is a huge application point I want you guys to wrestle with here. Here's people praying before a meal. Praying before a meal. And I really wrestled with this because I thought this is going to be the most boring application point I could possibly come up with. But I, I just kept coming back to it like, no, this is really, this is really at the root of what it means to be a Christian. And I don't want to zero in too much of the mechanics of praying before a meal, right? You could, you could have an attitude. You could, be, you could thank God quietly in your heart before you eat. You could thank God quietly in your heart throughout the day, right? So I'm not talking about the procedure here. I'm not talking about like, God is great, God is good, thank you God for our food, amen. You know, the stuff you teach your kids, that's good, that's the start, right? But, but underneath that is a constant thanksgiving. We should live with constant thanksgiving. So even just the mechanics of it, there's a tension there that all of you should wrestle with because Jesus says very clearly you shouldn't pray to be seen by other men, right? But then we're also told we should give thanks for all things at all times. We should always be praising God for his provision. So we have this spiritual tension. Okay, how do we execute that as Christians? Some of you are going to have rituals, kind of same way you always do it. You're just going to do it. Um, Others, you're going to wrestle with it and do it in different ways. Um, I would just leave that up to you and the Holy Spirit, right? I'm not going to nail it down for you exactly. This is what it looks like to do that. Wrestle with the tension, but, but think and pray through the principle here of recognizing God's help. Recognizing God's help. That is, that is just crucial. So this little, what seems like a junior Christian application of thanking God for feeding us, thanking God for your job, thanking God for your home, for your family, for taking care of you, recognizing God's help and God's provision, thanking God for spiritually transforming you. That is a, a root practice of being a follower of Jesus. That is, again, another miraculous thing. Don't underestimate the simple things in our spiritual life, but recognize that those are important practices. Recognize that God wants to do these things in our life and use them to transform us. So we should celebrate God's help. Little things like before a meal, right? Again, I'm not going to nail down how you do that. You might do that silently. You might do that in a big production. You might all stand on the table at a restaurant and sing a song together, right? I don't know how you do that. Um, it could be very quiet and subtle in your own heart. People don't even need to know that you prayed, right? Jesus says, don't do it to be seen, but we should do it, right? We should be giving thanks to God constantly. So that's, a, that's a kind of a more private or family-based application. But I think a, a broader principle here is um, they're celebrating publicly what God has done. And I've really wrestled with this as a leader because you might fall into this if you lead in any area, maybe leading at work or just leading your own family or uh, being a teacher or soldier, whatever it might look like. Sometimes when we lead, we focus so much on the next problem 
that we don't celebrate what God has done. Has that ever happened to y'all? I feel like I do that a lot. And so as an organization, we need to remember to celebrate God's goodness in our midst. Just like we talked earlier about Guatemala. Hey, this is what God did through us in Guatemala. Praise God. God is good. God helped us. That's an important thing for us to do corporately as well. And I would say for your family, stopping and celebrating what God has done in your family, in in your job, in whatever organization you're a part of, saying God is good. God is at work. He's doing great things. Stop and celebrate those things. We'll do that even through baptism today. Baptism is a type of celebration. It's a celebration of saying, look at what God has done. God has saved me. Now I'm going to mark that. I'm going to symbolically act that out through water and through this ceremony of saying, God has washed away my sins. The old me has died. The new me has risen to new life. So as God's people, we are a people that celebrate God's help in our life. The last thing we want to look at is mundane faithfulness here in chapter 7. I'm not going to read all of chapter 7, but want to just highlight some of the principles we see in chapter 7. It's a, it's a genealogy list where he gives us all these details of people and their names and their jobs and what they did. And we've seen some chapters like this before. This chapter is actually a, a record that is a copy of Ezra chapter 2 as well. So this same chapter is in the Bible twice, and it's historical details that say these are the people that were involved. And remember we've said before that the Bible is a historical book. It's, it's not a non-historical book that kind of floats in space and it's only concerned about spiritual things and spiritual things and physical things don't mix. No, the Bible merges those worlds and says spiritual things have broken into history. Jesus was a man. The Israelites were real people and, and this is their genealogy. And so just remember that's a part of our faith, that it's real, that it happens. And I think secondarily to that, what that looks like in our own life is we practice our faith in the mundane things of life. We, we don't, like I was kind of saying earlier, we don't always look for the next high or the next, the next mountaintop, but we trust that God is at work in the simple things. Let's look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1. And I, I stole the title for this point, Mundane Faithfulness, from a blog that I think might help you if you want to look it up. Uh, there was a church planter in our church planting network, Acts 29, named Jason Tippetts, and his wife just recently died uh, from breast cancer. And I think they had like three or four kids and Basically, as soon as they planted the church, they discovered uh, that she had cancer. So the, the entire time of them planting this church and raising their kids has been with her struggling against cancer and dying and not, not making it. And so she was writing a blog that had been really helpful for others, uh, just sharing how God is still at work in the mundane things of life. I think when we have a disease, when we have something like cancer or we're facing something really dramatic, it just highlights what's true for all of us, right? And I've, I've said this before, probably so many times you get sick of me saying it, but, but we are all dying, right? We're, we're all suffering, we're all facing death, and we're just facing it at different speeds and with a different level of, of drama and seriousness, but we're all dying. Uh, and so to follow God doesn't mean to be free of all those things. It means to face those things in the mundane practices of life with face, faithfulness, to trust God and his goodness day to day. Um, so in chapter 7, it says, Now when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. And I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not, the, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're standing guard, let them shut and bar the, go- the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, 
but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So what's happened is they've done this huge project. They celebrate God's help. God is at work. We built the wall in 52 days. Oh, now, now we need to fill. Now we need to populate the city, right? Um, so it's not just great commission, broadcasting who God is. It's also great. Um, it's also the creation mandate that we see in Genesis of be fruitful, multiply, uh, multiply. Um, it's also, we see this in Jeremiah 29 during the exile before this time where they're told, this is your plan to be faithful in Babylon is build houses, plant trees, marry, live a normal life. So, so God has this great love for living boring everyday lives, right? And a lot of times we forget this. We're so attracted to the big stuff, to the big ideas that we forget that God is with you in your boring ordinary life. Nehemiah goes on in chapter uh, 7, verse 5, and says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up the first, and I found written in it these names. These were the people. And he goes off now and lists all the people. I encourage you to spend some devotional time this week reading the genealogical lists. I'm going to have you do that on your own time. But just to remind you that God is at work in our normal, everyday lives. Just like reading a phone book and going, oh, real person, real person, real person. You're a real person. God wants to work through you in, in everyday things. Not just super spectacular, crazy, awesome things, but just in your everyday life. I have, a, I think, a symbolic picture of faithfulness in everyday life here. Someone bathing a baby. Any of you ever had a baby or known a baby? Anybody here? Okay. So I, I feel like babies are this, this beautiful picture of this um, where, where mundane and miraculous meets, right? In babies, we like to take pictures when they're especially cute, and we like to just capture those moments of, man, God is incredible. He made this baby, and it's so cute, and it just blows my mind, right? When I look at baby pictures of my kids, I just can't believe it, right? My kids are growing up now, and they're becoming adults, and it just, just freaks me out to remember how cute and lovable and everything they were as babies, but I don't tend to celebrate like them crying and having temper tantrums and changing their diapers. Right? I mean, there's, there's this other kind of mundane part of baby life, and I think it symbolizes that, yes, they're cute and they're awesome, but after you've changed seven diapers in one day and the baby's been screaming at you nonstop, sometimes you're, you're kind of tired, right? Like it's, it wears on you. And, and so I, I just want to capture that as an as a image for all of our life, like all of our life is this mix of these beautiful little moments of God is big and beautiful and awesome, and I live this boring, painful life, right? I mean, it's just, it's mundane. And God calls us to trust him, to be faithful in the mundane everythings of life, everyday things of life, to, as we're going to see here with the people of Israel, build houses. They're going to mow their lawn, right, and bake bread and change diapers. They're going to just do normal, boring everyday stuff. So, so don't fall for the idea that you're only valuable to God if you're doing fantastical missionary things and reaching millions of people. I would, I would pray that God would do something in your hearts. Maybe God does have this plan for you to, meet, to reach millions of people and do fantastic things, but God wants to use you in your everyday normal life. Don't forget that. God loves you, and he's working a miracle in your life, and as you faithfully fulfill your everyday mundane calling, you honor God with that. God values that. He, that's why he puts it in his book. Everyday lives matter. Normal lives matter. 
God's big missionary plan. Look it up in Jeremiah 29. This is what it looks like to impact Babylon. He says, live a normal life. Pray for the welfare of the city. Plant trees, plant gardens, build houses, marry people. Live your life and love God while you're living your everyday, boring, mundane life. That's what it means to follow him. I want to wrap up here and remember again where we started with facing fear. Sometimes fears paralyze us. And because Jesus faced our fears for us, we can be like Nehemiah. Because God is trustworthy, we can be like Nehemiah. Again, not trying to mimic Nehemiah and be the same kind of great leader and have all the same gifts he has. No, mimicking his faith, trusting that God is trustworthy. And God proved that he's trustworthy through Jesus. So we sang in that song, Love Shines. It's revealed to us through Calvary. Calvary is the hill that the cross was on. Through Jesus' death and resurrection for us, because our sins are placed on Jesus and because Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to us by faith, God sees you as perfect and acceptable and he delights in you just as much as he delights in his very own son. He loves you because of what Jesus has done. And so we can face our fears because of that. Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8, 18 says, I consider these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Let me pray for us and we'll respond maybe with a final song. I don't know. I think I kept us too long. We'll see. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for teaching us how to face our fears. And God, you know what those particular fears are. You know those those specific areas that, that I don't even know with every person here where, where our hearts are gripped, where we are sometimes paralyzed, unable to move. And so, God, we, we pray that you would move us forward, helping us to recognize the freedom we have in Christ, the ultimate salvation we have that would help us to then live life in hope now in light of what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.